legendary figure in the world of speechwriting. His inspirational guidebook, Lend Me Your Ears, is recognized globally as a classic. He's a highly experienced speaker and trainer, having been involved in speechwriting for business, politics and the arts for more than 30 years. He's developed a new and provocative way of looking at the subject and pioneered academic research into effective political speechwriting. I can't think of anyone who knows more about the power of the well-crafted speech and how to create it. You'll see what I mean when you meet Dr. Maxey Atkinson. Well, thank you, Fred, and uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, this is really a trip down memory lane because I'm quite often asked um, about the claptrap experiment that I was involved in in 1984. And even though it was a long time ago, people still seem to remember it. And there are a couple of things I want to sort of put on the record today. The first is to show you some of the things that were never filmed, because some of the things that were never filmed were the most important things in its success. But the good news for speech writers is that it was essentially a victory for speech writing. Um, so that's really what I'm, I'm going to show you the clips, uh, some of the clips at the end. But first of all, I'm going to um, say a little bit about how it came about and then go through the embarrassing business of showing you some film of what I looked like 30 years ago. Uh, the whole thing grew at a, com uh, at a conference. Uh, there used to be, before this conference was organised, a wonderful conference held after every general election at Essex University, consisting of academic political scientists, media people, and real-world politicians. An interesting mix. And I remember one of the uh, media people saying, the thing about this conference is, you have to realise that all the people here from the media want to be academics and all the academics want to go on TV. Uh, it turned out that this was very true because by the end of that conference, I was being pursued by three or four television programmes, one of which was Newsnight and one of which was World in Action. Now, for those of you uh, from abroad, I have to tell you that this World in Action show used to be a very uh, widely watched programme. It used to come on after the country's most popular soap opera, it was watched by between 10 and 15 million people uh, every time it went on. Um, at the end of this conference, I, I was cornered by a, a pr producer from the World in Action programme who said to me, don't sign up with any of these bastards till you've spoken to me, uh, which I thought was interesting. The following day, uh, the first day of the next week, I got a phone call from Newsnight uh, to BBC Newsnight, a programme that enjoys about 700,000 viewers and various dogs. Uh, that happened two or three days running, and I thought, what's going on here? Newsnight really want me on. Uh, and I knew that nobody would watch Newsnight. So I thought, well, I'd better phone this guy, Gus MacDonald, who was the guy from Granada Television, and see whether it was just the beer speaking. So I phoned him up and I said, now look, uh, Newsnight keep phoning me, um, what about what, what you were saying? And he says, I've had a brilliant idea, can you come to London? To which of course I said yes. The next day I went to London for lunch and he said to me, I've had, a, I've had this idea, we'll find a woman who's never made a speech before, um, you can coach her and we'll film the whole process. And 
I immediately said to him, bear in mind I was a straight academic who had never trained anybody in my life. I'd never even written a political speech at this stage. So I said, but what if it doesn't work? To which he said, oh, that doesn't matter. We'll just roll the credits. And as she gets up on the, uh, to the podium, we'll roll the credits and freeze the film. It'll be a much better way of telling the story, this is interesting, of telling the story of your research than the boring BBC Horizon programmes where you have an academic sitting next to a row of books. And I thought, well, that's an interesting idea, so let's go for it. What I didn't know was, the night before Anne Brennan made her speech, she asked him the same question, what if it doesn't work? To which he replied, it just means the book's no bloody good. <laughs> uh, something he denies. So th th this, is, this is the story, in a way, of the background story of uh, the Claptrap experiment, which was possibly the first ever fake it program on British television. Um, except it, it, was, it was genuine in the sense that uh, she was a very genuine member of the SDP, and I have to give a little bit of political background, especially for the youngsters among you and the foreigners among you. Uh, you have to understand that in 1984, uh, the left of British politics was in serious difficulties, uh, so much so that a new party had been formed, the Social Democratic Party, uh, which had been formed by some pe people who had served under Harold Wilson's uh, Labour government. And this particular uh, speaker that we're going to see uh, was a representative of the SDP. And I'll have to fill in some of the background as we go through uh, looking at it. So the first clip that I'm going to show you uh, really illustrates the, some high tech, uh, really high tech, you'd be interested, techies among you, to see uh, an apricot computer anyone can remember apricot computers, which had two 750K, 750K floppy disks. Uh, and at the time, I thought it was quite impressive that they managed to get this into the picture. So this was the start of the show. Welcome Action challenged Dr. Atkinson to put his theories to the test, to reveal the tricks of the speaker's trade and transform Anne Brennan into an auditor. There is only one down at Britain plant. Now, I had been tempted to call the book, uh, which was eventually called Our Master's Voices, uh, Claptrap, but I thought that that might be a hostage to fortune as far as reviewers were concerned. Uh, however, Granada Television had no such qualms. That's what they called it. And uh, why it was called that was explained by a rather young chap at the start of the film. What you're actually saying in this book is that politicians use tricks to make people like me clap. Yes, uh, and more than that, in fact, there already is a word in the language which everybody knows for referring to it, which mm -hmm. is clap trap. A lot of people think that means the sort of thing politicians say, but in fact, if you look it up in the Oxford Dictionary, you find that it means a trick, device, or language designed to catch applause. And when you, look, when you look at the tapes, you find uh, that there are various things that they're doing over and over again, which occur just before the audience start to applaud. Uh, now, those things that they're doing over and over again, some of you will be familiar with, especially if you've read my books. Uh, what has astonished me during the course of doing the research was just how um, regular it was that audiences were applauding after the speaker had used one of a very small number 
of incredibly simple rhetorical techniques. And although certain classicists have attacked me for merely rediscovering the wheel, uh, I really don't care because if the wheel is worth rediscovering, um, it's good that people should know about it. And I do think that the focus on what actually triggers applause perhaps gave us access to the, the big rhetorical techniques that really do work uh, for people. However, it was interesting that World in Action were covering themselves. They wanted to really lay it on the line that they had two serious academics who knew about these things. And we were greatly encouraged by the producers to rattle off numbers and statistics as much as we possibly could in order to give the impression of a kind of spurious scientific validation to what we were talking about. Uh, and this is illustrated rather nicely by uh, one of my best friends who's now at UCLA, John Heritage, who had been doing a, a related study at the time and was deeply embarrassed because he was in a, a sociology department which was, he was the only non-Marxist in the department and Anne asked him who the star speaker of our age was and you'll see him hesitating somewhat as, as he leads up to announcing the name of the star and some of her achievements. One has to say that Margaret Thatcher is the outstanding success of modern times. One of her speeches of party leader which uh, I looked at, in the 45 minute speech which she gave, over 10 minutes of that time was occupied with applause. She was applauded 77 times in 35 minutes. And that's a tremendously effective rate. Once every four sentences on average she was applauded. So we were trotting these numbers out. So there's quite a lot of stuff of John and I showing Anne how these techniques work. Another segment of the programme, of which there was a great deal, consisted of the voice coaching, or at least work with the voice coach. Uh, and this, I think, was partly because they wanted to get the parallel with Margaret Thatcher going, and also because the Granada television people thought that it was really good television to show voice coaches in action, especially on the stage of the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford-on-Avon. Mrs Thatcher had her voice deepened and her range improved by experts at the National Theatre and went to get her voice coached with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Five, six, seven, eight, not bad, and open mouth and then just sigh out. That's good. And jump. Hey! Hey! I don't know if there are any voice coaches here, but, um, I, and I'm hesitant to say this because it sounds as though I'm uh, rather doing them down, but when I asked Anne how much she thought this had helped, she said not at all. She hadn't done any of the exercises that she'd been set by the voice coach, but although it may have been that the actual official exercises did her no good, I do think that the involvement of Cicely Berry from the uh, Royal Shakespeare Company gave her confidence because she felt that she was in safe hands. Uh, little did she know that we were very unsafe hands because we'd never written a speech before. Um, and in fact, I don't think Cicely had ever uh, been involved in a political speech either, but certainly Anne Brennan thought, that thought at least, that we, we knew what we were talking about. So I'm not sure that the actual voice coaching itself helped very much. Uh, what did, however, help was the speech writing. But the trouble was that the speech writing part of the show was faked. 
uh, somewhat faked, and uh, I'll explain what I mean in a moment. There was a, a point in the speech where Anne and I went to the Trade Union Congress to watch Arthur Scargill speaking, and we discovered that I was supposed to describe to her what he was doing, and as soon as I started speaking, I was told by some delegates, uh, if I carried on speaking, they'd knock my bloody head off. And I really realised how scary uh, an audience could be at that time. And uh, we adjourned a week or two later for me to explain what Scargill had been doing in private. And at the end of it, um, she asks me what she should do next. When I get there, I want to talk about inequality and the image of the SDP. How, how best can I use these devices? Well, I think at this stage, probably the best thing to do is go and see a professional speech writer. More high tech. Now there's a problem with this because when we arrived to do the filming, a major row erupted. Uh, he had been sent a copy of my book and asked to write a speech in line with what I'd been saying in it. And uh, he'd done that. He handed the speech to Anne Brennan to inspect it and she went absolutely berserk, accused him of trying to put labour words into her mouth. He accused her of being a closet Tory and it, and it looked as though there was going to be no filming done that day whatsoever. So we said, and this was a pity, we never filmed this, we said to her, look, is there anything in this speech you're willing to accept? And if only that had been filmed, uh, her putting rings round bits, because it was almost as though it was the contrasts and the three-part lists which were jumping off the page at her and she was saying, oh yes, I like this, I like this. And there was enough, I like this, for him to be able to give her a little bit of advice. Uh, I think that the, uh, the, the three-part list and the contrasts and my own preference for modest alliteration can come in here. So instead of really talking about Kevin, I, what I would like to see you do here is to say, uh, there's a party we should be more concerned with Bermondsey than with Burgundy. Let me just explain that for um, people who perhaps are unfamiliar with British politics. He says, uh, rather than say claret, the reason for this is that the SDP were known as claret drinking Volvo driving intellectuals. And Anne Brennan was wanting to uh, basically make the point that if they were going to be successful, they had to attract more traditional voters. So. The other thing to note is that the Liberal Party, which was closely aligned with the SDP, had just won a by-election in a place called Bermondsey, hence Bermondsey and Burgundy, uh, was introduced for her from, by Joe Haynes. Uh, that gives you the contrast and the illustration that, uh, that council houses are more important than country houses. And that uh, comprehensives are more important uh, colleges. That would give you a three-part list, which not only this research, but my whole experience has shown me uh, is the most effective way of delivering a speech or not. It will give you a three-part list, it will state the contrast, and it gives you the alliteration which is good for effect. <coughs> okay, now as I said, the actual speech writing itself took place a week or two later and there were three of us involved, there was Anne Brennan, Gus MacDonald and myself. We spent a day, a Sunday, going through the speech in immense detail um, and it was very much using what she thought and trying to translate that into form um, that would work effectively. 
So the, 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 the debate in which she was going to be speaking was about inequality. And they had, somebody had written a very tedious paper that discussing utilitarian philosophy about equality. And well, at the speech writing session, I asked Anne, um, I said, have you actually read this paper? At which point she said, I hardly understand a word of it. And so we hung on to I hardly understand a word of it as a place, as, as a way of opening the speech. Now, I should say the other thing that was never filmed, tragically, was the rehearsal the night before. The first time she attempted to read the speech out, she read it out in a very similar kind of way. Very boring, very tedious. Cicely Berry, however, got hold of her and said, look, you've got to do what actors do, mark up the script. And she showed her how to mark in pauses in the script. She showed her how to mark in mood descriptors. So she put in lots of ad ad adverbs. So things like challengingly, humorously, um, defiantly were put in the margin and those produced changes in her intonation and as we watch her speak you will see that as she goes on she actually gets better at what she does so that to me was one of the big uh, tragedies not only was the real speech writing not filmed but also the second most important part of the success of the experiment was the rehearsal the practice of the speech itself all done the night before she actually gave it uh, as luck would have it, the opening line, which of course came in third position, um, struck a chord. And I think one of the things we were lucky with was that it was a case of the emperor has no clothes. She was not alone in finding this particular paper unintelligible. Madam President, <coughs> I feel very unequal in this debate. I've been through the background paper and I hardly understand a word of it. Those of you who were here a year or two ago may remember I did a talk on using objects as visual aids and this was the point at which I realised that using an object could be effective as a visual aid. Holding this boring report up was enough to get not just laughter but a slight burst of applause. One of the things I think with that which we learned also was uh, that actually 
it would have worked better if she hadn't uh, added that bit at the beginning. We must never forget. If she'd just done the three contrasts, the third one would have got the applause much more effectively and more enthusiastically than it in fact it did. This next one, uh, in the original draft, which she corrected, it said, I have a confession to make. And she said, I'd never say that. And we said, well, what would you say? She said, I'd say something like, I'll come clean. And so we changed, I have a confession to make, to I'll come clean. And as you see, uh, it's a puzzle that leads to a solution that has a fairly dramatic effect. And oh, by the way, for those of you who are unfamiliar, uh, people from abroad, with British newspapers, you need to know that the Guardian newspaper was at this time quite a keen supporter of the SDP. And there was a fair chance that large numbers of people at this conference would be keen Guardian readers. I'll come clean, Madam President. And I hope it's not ground for expulsion. I don't even read The Guardian. <laughs> <laughs> and since coming to Buxton, I've never seen as many people reading The Guardian in the whole of my life. Everybody who reads The Guardian votes for us, and only them. We'll lose our deposit in every constituency in the country. Okay, so there you have some excerpts from the, the 27 minutes that changed my life and um, quite a lot of other people's as well. Uh, as I said at the start, the interesting thing was that a huge percentage of the success lay in the scripting, in the speech writing itself, and in the rehearsal. What the percentages of those two are, uh, it's, I think it's impossible to say, but in my more um, speech writery moments, I'll sometimes say I think it was probably 80% lay in the scripting of the speech and 20% in the rehearsal. And over the years since then, I've come to the view that if the script, if the speech writing is good enough, if, this, if the text is powerful enough, the speaker has to be virtually dyslexic to fail. Uh, that, that's actually my current position on this. Um, interestingly, uh, Peter Snow of Newsnight discovered what was going on 
in the course of this event. Robin Day, who was doing the BBC commentary, at the end of the speech had announced that this was the most incredibly good speech of the week, the only standing ovation for a floor speaker. Absolutely fantastic. And then a few minutes later, Peter Snow had told him what was going on, and Robin Day erupted with disgust and disgrace and said uh, a dreadful story has emerged it seems that it's a hoax put up by Granada television and this woman has been trained by a, a, a man from Oxford who's a who's an expert in how people wave their hands about <laughs> and um, at that point I thought of suing on the grounds that some of you will know that my views about uh, body language are uh, not at all suggestive that it's the most important thing in the world uh, however um, Snow was not put off, and I'll just end by saying he, he did an, has followed this with an interview of three activists who he wanted to say, he was trying to get them to say, this is disgraceful. And one chap said, he said, well, he said, uh, if you can be coached to get a, to get a standing ovation, I'd like a course of their coaching. <laughs> and uh, that, from my point of view, it's great good luck, because the following 25 years or so, that's how I've made my living. Um, I've always wanted to know more about that. And did she ever go on to fame and fortune herself? Did she, uh, she made the mistake yes. of uh, signing up <laughs> working with me. No, 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 worse than that. She signed up with uh, David Owen when the SDP broke away from the merged party. Yeah. What happened, the, by the way, uh, history was that the, Liberal, the Liberals and the SDP merged. Uh, and became the Liberal Democrats, as they are now. But unfortunately, David Owen, who had been leader of the SDP, if you remember, yeah. refused to join the new party. And she stayed with the David Owen rump, which basically disappeared fairly quickly after that. Did anyone have uh, any questions? Young man in the front. Fairbanks from New Zealand. And can't name her accent, but I'm just wondering about whether audiences detect some sort of mismatch between the education and background of the speaker for whom you give wonderful words and whether they go, this is not authentically her. Oh. What, do you think they thought it wasn't authentically her? No, I'm not saying they did. I'm wondering if it's part of your thinking. When she said, I'll come clean, yeah. she actually changed the script, to use her own words. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of those words weren't here. And I wonder if this audience or audiences these days are getting more sophisticated about knowing the craft, the dark art that Maybe. we perform. Maybe. And whether they go, actually, she wouldn't have said that. Someone else has crafted that. We're clapping a speechwriter, not the passion of Anne Brennan. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think anybody sat there thinking we're clapping a speechwriter. No, not then. No. But what about 30 years later? Uh, well, I have views on that as well, but, uh, uh, which I've plugged about at great length. I, I think there is a, a real problem these days um, in the whole the speech writing thing, uh, the, the way in which speeches have become less important in British politics, unlike in American politics, where they still seem to be quite important. But that, I think, is another story. And they remain more important in British politics, I would argue, than a lot of British politi politicians believe. And the message I'm constantly trotting out to people is, don't forget, we have a Prime Minister who got the job on the back of a 10-minute speech at a beauty parade. And, you know, people underestimate Cameron at their peril. 
even this last week, there have been opinion polls saying that although Labour's way ahead in, in terms of the, the party vote, Cameron is getting much better ratings as a le for leadership than Ed Miliband. So, you know, he's a bit of a dark horse. And those who want to say the speech is over, has had it, I think are taking a very high risk. We've got more time for one more question. Back, hi. Hello. There's one aspect of the scripting that you, you didn't touch upon, and that's the stride length of the phrases. If you notice that she was trapped into looking down quite a lot at the mm -hmm. at the text, whereas if you if this if the phrases had been of a length that she could glance at a phrase, internalize it, and deliver it as coming from herself, I think her delivery would have been even better. Yeah. Would you agree? Um, yes, I, I would, but I think it. I didn't. I don't think it was bad. I think it was pretty, pretty good compared with a lot of speeches you watch uh, in terms of the looking down and that looking down and picking up the, the thing is partly, um, or is partly catered for in that speech by the use of uh, slash marks, mark to mark in pauses. So I'm sure you're familiar with a, a single slash mark equals a slight pause, a double slash mark equals a longer pause. And, and she had that done in her script. Uh, it could have been better, sure, but the, the amount of rehearsal, that was the other thing which was frightening, was how little, uh, it, it, how little rehearsal there was. It was probably no more than an hour the night before the speech, maybe an hour and a half. Um, and one of the things which people never used to believe me about, they'd say, oh God, how long did it take to do? Well, the whole thing in terms of the filming, et cetera, et cetera, probably took no more than 12 hours. Why didn't she rehearse Absolute more? Absolute maximum. Sorry? Why didn't she rehearse more? I think it was because she didn't realise how, how necessary it was. Uh, and it was, again, I think we were all learning. Because we, I mean, as I said, we'd never written a speech before. So it's a, a fluke, <laughs> to say the least. Um, and, and so uh, we were learning. And one of the things that she'd learnt was that she needed to rehearse it. Happily, we had with us head of voice at Royal Shakespeare Theatre, who knew a thing or two about rehearsing. And I, I learned a tremendous amount from her, which I still use when I'm teaching. You know, I, I'm still lifting, I mean, I'm still on good terms with Cicely Berry. She doesn't mind the fact that I rip her off. Uh, but a lot of her stuff is worth ripping off. Well, most of us rip you off, mate. Sorry? <laughs> most of us rip you off. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> so long as there's that tribute. <laughs> <laughs> um, we move on.